Chapter Nine, Part One of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Nine, Part One. They were rehearsing the Little Duchess at the Variety Theatre. The first act had just been gone through, and they were about to commence the second. In two old armchairs placed close to the footlights, Fauchery and Bordonave were arguing together whilst the prompter old Cassard, a little hunchback, was seated on a rush-bottomed chair, a pencil between his lips turning over the leaves of the manuscript. "'Well, what are you all waiting for?' suddenly exclaimed Bordonave, thumping furiously on the boards with his heavy walking-stick. "'Barillo, why don't you begin?' "'It's Monsieur Bosque, he's disappeared,' replied Barillo, who was acting as assistant stage-manager. Then there was quite a storm of shouts. Everyone called Bosque. Bordeneuve cursed and swore. "'Damn it all! It's always the same. One may ring and call. They're always where they oughtn't to be, and then they grumble when they're kept after four o'clock.' Busk, however, arrived with serene coolness. "'Hey, what? Who wants me? Ah, it's time for my entrance. Then why didn't you say so? Good. Simon, give me my cue.' There are the guests arriving, and I enter. How am I to enter? Why, through the door, of course, shouted Fauchery, losing patience. Yes, but where is the door? This time Bordonave attacked Barillot, cursing and swearing again, and banging his stick on the board sufficient to split them. Damn it all! I said a chair was to be placed there to represent the door. Every day I have to repeat the same thing. Barrio, where's Barrio? There's another. They all bolt off. Barrio, however, bowing beneath the tempest, came and placed the chair without saying a word, and the rehearsal continued. Simone, with her bonnet on and enveloped in her fur cloak, assumed the airs of a servant arranging some furniture. She interrupted herself to say, You know I am not very warm, so I shall keep my hands in my muff. Then, changing her voice, she greeted Bosque with a faint cry and said, why, it's the Count. You are the first, sir, and Madame will be very pleased. Bosque had on a muddy pair of trousers, a big drab overcoat, and an immense muffler rolled round his neck. With his hands in his pockets and an old hat on his head, he said in a hollow voice, without any acting but merely dragging himself along, Do not disturb your mistress, Isabella. I wish to give her a surprise. The rehearsal went on. Bordenave, scowling and buried in his armchair, listened with an air of fatigue. Faucherie, nervous and constantly changing his position, was seized every minute with a desire to interrupt, which, however, he repressed. But he heard whispering behind him in the dark and empty house. "'Is she there?' he asked, leaning towards Bordenave. The latter nodded his head. Before accepting the part of Géraldine which he had offered her, Nana had wished to see the piece.' for she hesitated before agreeing to act the part of a gay woman. What she longed for was to appear on the stage as a lady. She was half hidden in the shadow of a box with La Bordette, who was exerting himself with Bordenave for her. Faucherie glanced round at her and then gave all his attention to the rehearsal. Only the front of the stage was lighted up. A large jet of gas issuing from a pipe erected at the junction of the footlights, and the glare of which was disseminated by means of a powerful reflector, looked like a great yellow eye in the semi-obscurity, where it blazed with a sort of dubious sadness. Against the slender gas-pipe stood Cossard, holding up the manuscript close to the light, which vividly exposed the outline of his hump. 
Then, more in the shadow, were Faucherie and Bordenave. In the midst of the enormous structure, this light, which illumined the distance of a few yards only, looked like the glimmer of a lantern fixed to a post at some railway station, the actors appearing like so many strange phantoms with their shadows dancing before them. The rest of the stage, full of a kind of fine dust similar to that which hangs about houses in the course of demolition, resembled a gigantic nave undergoing repair with its ladders, its frameworks, and its side scenes, the faded paint on which imitated heaps of rubbish. And the drop scenes suspended up aloft had an appearance of frippery hanging to the beams of some vast rag warehouse, whilst a ray of sunshine which had penetrated through some window intersected the darkness above like a bar of gold. At the back of the stage, some of the actors were conversing together while waiting for their cues. They had gradually raised their voices. "'I say there, will you keep quiet?' yelled Bordenave, who sprung from his chair in a rage. "'I can't hear a word. Go outside if you want to talk. We're working.' "'Barriot, if anyone talks again, I'll find the whole lot.' They held their tongues for a short time. They formed a little group seated on a bench in some rustic chairs in a bit of a garden, the first scene for the evening which was placed there ready to be fixed. Fontan and Prullière were listening to Rose Mignon, who had just received a splendid offer from the manager of the Folie Dramatique Theatre. But a voice called out, The Duchess, Saint-Firmin. Now then, the Duchess and Saint-Firmin. Prullière did not recollect till the second call that he was Saint-Firmin. Rose, who played the part of the Duchess Hélène, was waiting for him to make their entrance. Slowly dragging his feet over the vacant, sonorous boards, old Bosque returned to sit down. Then Clarisse offered him half the bench. "'What does he yell about like that for?' asked she, speaking of Bordenave. "'It will be getting unbearable soon. He can't bring out a new piece now without giving vent to his feelings in that way.' Bosque shrugged his shoulders. He was above all those shindies. Fontan whispered, "'He smells a failure. "'I think it's a most idiotic piece.' "'Then, returning to Rose's story, he said to Clarisse, "'Do you believe it, eh? Three hundred francs a night and a hundred performances guaranteed? "'Why not a country house into the bargain? "'If his wife was offered three hundred francs, "'Mignon would chuck up Baudelaire and without warning, too.' "'Clarisse believed in the truth of the offer.' Fontan was always running his comrades down. But Simone interrupted them. She was shivering. All well buttoned up and with scarves round their necks, looked up at the sunbeam which shone without descending into the mournful coldness that hung about the stage. Outside it was freezing beneath a clear November sky. "'And there's no fire in the green room,' said Simone. "'It's disgusting. He's becoming beastly miserly. I've a good mind to go home.' I don't want to be ill. Silence there, cried Bordenave again in a voice of thunder. Then for a few minutes nothing was heard but the confused voices of the actors. They scarcely indicated the gestures and spoke in a quiet voice so as not to tire themselves. However, when they intended to score a point, they glanced at the auditorium. It appeared to them like an enormous hole in which floated a vague shadow, similar to a fine dust confined in a big loft without windows. The house, which was in darkness except for the feeble light transmitted from the stage, seemed wrapped in a troubled and melancholy sleep. The paintings on the ceiling were veiled in obscurity. From the top to the bottom of the stage boxes, on the right and left, hung immense breadths of coarse grey linen to protect the hangings, 
and strips of the same material were thrown over the velvet of the balustrades, girdling the balconies with a double winding sheet, staining as it were the gloom with their pale tint. In the general discoloration one could only distinguish the darker recesses of the boxes, which indicated the different stories, and the breaks caused by the seats, the red velvet of which had a blackish look. The great crystal gasolier, lowered almost to the ground, filled the stalls with its pendants, and gave one the idea of a removal, of a departure of the public on a journey from which it would never return. Rose, in her part of the little duchess, lost at the house of some fast woman, just then advanced towards the footlights. She raised her hands and pouted adorably to that dark empty house, which was as sad as though it were in mourning. "'Good heavens! What curious people!' said she, accentuating the phrase, certain of the effect. At the back of the box in which she was seated, Nana, wrapped in a large shawl, was listening to the piece and devouring Rose with her eyes. She turned to La Bordette and asked him in a low voice, "'You're sure he's coming?' "'Quite sure.' No doubt he will come with Mignon as a pretext. As soon as he arrives, you must go up into Mathilde's dressing-room, and I will bring him there to you. They were talking of Count Mufa. It was an interview on neutral ground arranged by La Bordette. He had had a serious talk with Bordenave, whom two successive failures had brought to a very low ebb. And Bordenave had hastened to lend his theatre and offer a part to Nana, wishing to get on good terms with the Count with the view of borrowing some money of him. And the part of Géraldine, what do you think of it? resumed La Bordette. But Nana neither answered nor moved. After the first act, in which the author made the Duc de Beaurivage deceive his wife with the fair Géraldine, an operatic star, came the second act, where the Duchess Hélène went to the actresses on the night of a masked ball to learn by what magic power such creatures conquered and retained the husbands of better women. It was a cousin, the handsome Oscar de Saint-Firmin, who introduced her there, hoping to seduce her. And, to her great surprise, as a first lesson she heard Géraldine abusing the duke in the language of a navvy, whilst the latter seemed to be delighted. This sight drew from her the cry, Ah, well, if that's the way the men must be spoken to. This was about the only scene Géraldine had in the act. As for the duchess, she was soon punished for her curiosity. An old beau, the Baron de Tardivaux, took her for one of the gay women and attacked her vigorously, whilst on the other side, Beaurivage made it up with Géraldine, who was reclining in an easy chair and kissed her. As the part of the latter was not filled up, old Cassard had risen to read it, and he accentuated certain passages in spite of himself and acted in Bosque's arms. They had reached this scene, the rehearsal dragged on tediously, when suddenly Faucherie jumped up from his chair. He had restrained himself till then, but his nerves had at length got the better of him. "'That isn't it!' he exclaimed. The actors paused, their arms dangling beside them. Fontan, screwing up his nose, asked in a sneering way, "'What? What isn't it?' "'You're all wrong. It's not that at all. Not that at all,' resumed Faucherie, who marched about the stage, gesticulating, and went through the scene." Look here, Fontan, you must understand Tardivaux's excitement. You lean forward like this, with this gesture to seize hold of the Duchess. And you, Rose, it's then that you pass, quickly, like this, but not too soon, not till you hear the kiss. He interrupted himself and called to Cassard in the heat of his explanations. Géraldine, give the kiss, loud, so that it can be well heard. Old Cassard turned towards Busk and smacked his lips vigorously. 
Good, that's the kiss, said Faucherie jubilantly. Give the kiss once more. Now you see, Rose, I've had time to pass, and then I utter a faint cry. Ah, she has kissed him. But for that, Tardivaux must follow you towards the back of the stage. Do you hear, Fautin? You must follow her to the back of the stage. Now try it over again, and all together. The actors went through the scene a second time, but Fontan played his part with such ill will that it was worse than ever. Twice again Fauchery gave his directions, acting the mimic each time with more warmth. They all listened to him in a mournful way, looked at one another for an instant, as though he had asked them to walk on their heads, and then awkwardly tried again, to stop almost directly with the rigidity of puppets whose strings have just been broken. No, it's too much for me. I can't understand it, Fontan ended by saying in his insolent tone of voice. During all this while, Baudonnev had not opened his lips. Buried in the depths of his armchair, one could only see by the pale light of the gas jet the top of his hat, which he had pulled over his eyes and his immense stomach, in front of which was his walking stick, abandoned between his legs, and one would have thought him asleep. Suddenly he rose up. My young friend, it's absurd, said he to Faucherie in a quiet tone of voice. How absurd, exclaimed the author, turning very pale. You are absurd yourself, my boy. Bordenave at once flew into a passion. He repeated the word absurd, and, seeking for something stronger, substituted imbecile and idiotic. It would be hissed they would never be allowed to finish the act, and as Faucherie exasperated, though not particularly offended by his abuse, which occurred each time they rehearsed a new piece together, roundly called him a brute, Bordenave lost all control of himself. He twirled his stick in his hand and, breathing like a mad bull, exclaimed, Damnation, go to the deuce! There's another quarter of an hour wasted in stupidity. Yes, stupidity. There's not the least particle of common sense in it. And yet it's so simple. You, Fontan, you're not to budge. You, Rose, you make a little movement, like this, you know, but no more than you come forward. Now try it that way. Off you go. Cassar, give the kiss. The scene went no better, the confusion became greater. Then Bordenave also began to mimic with the gracefulness of an elephant, whilst Faucherie stood by sneering and shrugging his shoulders in a pitying sort of way. Then Fontan mixed himself up in it, and even Busque ventured to give his advice. Rose, quite tired out, had finished by sitting down on the chair which indicated the door. No one any longer knew what they were about. To crown the confusion— Simone, thinking she heard her cue, made her entrance too soon in the midst of the disorder. This so enraged Baudenave that, whirling his stick round in a terrible manner, it alighted with great force on her posterior. He often struck the women who had been his mistresses during rehearsals. She rushed off, pursued by this furious cry, "'Take that home with you, and damn it all! I'll shut up the show if I'm bothered any more!' Faucherie had pressed his hat down on his head and pretended to leave the theatre, but he remained standing at the back of the stage and came forward again when he saw Baudenave return to his armchair in a frightful state of perspiration. He resumed his own seat. They remained a short time, side by side, without stirring, whilst complete silence reigned throughout the house. The actors waited nearly two minutes. They all seemed to be in a state of the greatest dejection, as though they had just gone through a most fatiguing task. "'Well, continue,' 
said Bordenave at length in his ordinary tone of voice, and perfectly calm. Yes, continue, repeated Fauchery. We will arrange the scene tomorrow. And they stretched themselves out, and the rehearsal resumed its course of tediousness and supreme indifference. During the row between the manager and the author, Fontan and the others had had a most enjoyable time at the back, seated on the bench in the rustic chairs. They had laughed quietly among themselves with numerous grunts and witty remarks. But when Simone returned with her whack behind and her voice broken by sobs, they went in for tragedy, saying that in her place they would have strangled the old pig. She wiped her eyes, nodding her head the while. It was all over. She would leave him, more especially as Steiner the day before had offered to provide for her. Clarisse was lost in astonishment. The banker was without a sou. But Prullière laughed and reminded her of how the confounded Jew had advertised himself by means of Rose when he had been working the shares of the salt-works of the Land. Just then he had another project, a tunnel under the Bosphorus. Simone listened very much interested. As for Clarisse, she had been in an awful rage for a week past. That beast, La Faloise, whom she had flung into Gaga's venerable arms, had just inherited the property of a very rich uncle. She had no luck. She was always warming the house for the next tenant. Then that brute Bordenave had only given her a wretched part of fifty lines when she could very well have played Géraldine. She was longing for the part and had great hopes that Nana would refuse it. Well, and I, said Prullière indignantly, I haven't two hundred lines. I wish to decline the part. It's an insult to ask me to play that Saint-Firmin. It's as bad as being shelved. And what a piece, my friends! You know it'll be an awful fiasco. Here Simone, who had been talking with old Barillot, returned and said all out of breath, I say, Nana's here. Whereabouts? asked Clarisse, rising quickly from her seat to see. The news passed rapidly from one to the other. Everyone leant forward to have a look. For an instant the rehearsal was interrupted, but Bordenave suddenly roused himself and yelled, well, what's the matter? Finish the act, can't you? And keep quiet, you over there. The row you kick up is intolerable. Nana was still watching the piece from her box. La Bordette had twice addressed her, but she had impatiently pushed him with her elbow to make him leave off. The second act was just about ending when two figures appeared at the back of the stage. As they walked down to the front on the tips of their toes so as not to make any noise, Nana recognized Mignon and Count Mifa, who nodded in silence to Bordenave. Ah, there they are, murmured she with a sigh of relief. Rose Mignon gave the last cue. Then Bordenave said that they must go through the second act again before touching the third one. And leaving the rehearsal, he greeted the Count with most exaggerated politeness, whilst Fauchery pretended to be wholly engaged with the actors around him. Mignon whistled quietly to himself with his hands behind his back and looking tenderly at his wife who seemed rather nervous. "'Well, shall we go up?' asked La Bordette of Nana. "'I will make you comfortable in the room and then come back for him.' Nana left the box at once. She had to feel her way along the passage which led to the boxes and stalls, but Bordenave guessed she was there as she was hurrying along in the dark and he caught her up at the end of the corridor which passed behind the stage a narrow place where the gas was kept burning night and day. There, so as to get the matter settled quickly, he at once attacked her about the part of Géraldine. Eh, hey, what a part! What go there is in it! 
It is exactly suited to you. Come tomorrow to rehearsal. Nana kept very cool. She wished to see the third act. Oh, the third act is superb. The Duchess plays at being a fast woman in her own home, which disgusts Borivage and gives him a lesson. And then there's a very funny imbroglio. Tardivo arrives and thinking he is at some dancers. And what does Géraldine do in all that? interrupted Nana. Géraldine, repeated Bordenave, slightly embarrassed. She has a scene, not very long, but a capital one. The part is a splendid one for you, I tell you. Come and sign an agreement now. For a few seconds she looked him straight in the face and then replied, We'll talk it over by and by. And she joined La Bordette, who was waiting for her on the stairs. Everyone in the theatre had recognized her. They were all whispering together. Her return quite scandalized Prudière, and Clarisse was very uneasy about the part she was longing for. As for Fontan, he pretended supreme indifference. It was not for him to abuse a woman he had loved. In his heart, in his old infatuation now turned to hatred, he entertained a ferocious grudge against her on account of her devotion to him, of her beauty, and of that dual existence which he had severed through the perversion of his monster-like inclinations. However, when La Bordette returned and went up to the Count, Rose Mignon, already put on her guard from the knowledge of Nana's presence, suddenly understood what was going on. Mifa bored her immensely, but the thought of being thrown over in that fashion was too much for her. She broke the silence she usually maintained with her husband on those matters and said to him bluntly, You see what is going on. Well, I give you my word that if she tries on the Steiner Dodge again, I will scratch her eyes out. Mignon, calm and serene, shrugged his shoulders with the air of a man who sees everything. Be quiet, will you? he murmured. Just oblige me by holding your tongue. He knew what he was about. He had got pretty well all he could out of Mifa. He felt that on a sign from Nana the Count was ready to lie down and be her footstool. It was impossible to fight with such a passion as his, and so knowing what men are, his only thought was to get the most he could out of the situation. He must wait and see how things went. And he waited. "'Rose, it's your scene!' cried Bordenave. "'The second act, over again!' "'Go,' resumed Mignon. "'Leave me to manage this.' Then in his bantering way he amused himself by complimenting Faucherie on his piece. It was a capital play, only why was his grand lady so extremely virtuous? It was not natural. And he jeeringly asked who was the original of the Duc de Beaurivage, the fool whom Géraldine did what she liked with. Faucherie, far from being annoyed, began to smile. But Bordenave, glancing in the direction of Mifa, seemed annoyed, and that made Mignon serious again and set him thinking. "'Damn it all! Are we ever going to begin?' yelled the manager. "'Look sharp, Barriot. Hey, Busk isn't there. Does he think he's going to make a fool of me any longer?' But at that moment Busk quietly appeared and took his place. The rehearsal recommenced just as La Bordette went off with the Count. The latter trembled at the thought of seeing Nana again. After their rupture he had felt himself alone in the world. He had allowed himself to be led to Rose, not knowing how to employ his time, and thinking he was merely suffering from the alteration in his habits. Besides, in the state of stupor in which he then was, he wished to be ignorant of everything, forbidding himself to seek Nana, and avoiding an explanation with the Countess. 
it seemed to him that he owed that oblivion to his dignity. But there was a secret power at work, and Nana slowly reconquered him by his recollections, by the weaknesses of his flesh, and by new feelings, exclusive, tender, and almost paternal. The abominable scene in which he had taken part was forgotten. He no longer beheld Fontan, he no longer heard Nana ordering him out as she twitted him with his wife's adultery. They were mere words which passed by as soon as they were uttered, whilst in his heart there remained a sting the pangs of which almost suffocated him. His thoughts at times became quite childish, he accused himself, imagining that she would not have deceived him had he really loved her. His agony became intolerable, and he was most unhappy. It was like the smart of an old wound, no longer that blind and impatient desire putting up with anything, but a jealous love of that woman a need of her alone, of her hair, of her mouth, of her body that haunted him. Whenever he recalled the sound of her voice a tremor ran through his limbs. He longed for her with the exigencies of a miser and infinite delicacy. And this love had seized upon him so grievously that at the first words Labordette uttered when sounding him respecting an interview, he threw himself into his arms by an irresistible movement, "'ashamed afterwards of having given way "'in a manner so ridiculous for a man of his rank. "'But La Bordette knew how to see and forget. "'He gave another proof of his tact "'in leaving the Count at the foot of the stairs "'with these simple words quickly uttered. "'On the second floor, turned to the right, "'the door is only pushed to. "'Mifa found himself alone "'in this silent corner of the building. "'As he passed by the green room, "'he noticed, through the open doors,' the dilapidation of the vast apartment, which in the daylight appeared in a disgraceful state through dirt and constant wear and tear. But what surprised him on his leaving the noise and semi-obscurity of the stage were the bright clear light, the intense quietude of that staircase, which he had seen one night smoky with gas and sonorous with the rush of women scurrying about from floor to floor. One could tell the dressing-rooms were unoccupied, the passages deserted, for there was not a soul, not a sound, whilst through the small square windows on a level with the stairs entered the pale November sun, in the yellow rays of which an infinitesimal dust distorted itself, whilst a death-like peacefulness hung over all. He felt happy in this silence and calm. He mounted the stairs slowly, trying not to get out of breath. His heart bounded against his breast, and he was seized with the fear of acting like a child, with sighs and tears. Then, when he reached the first landing, he leant against the wall, certain of not being seen, and, holding his handkerchief to his mouth, he looked at the warped steps, at the iron hand railings shining from the constant friction, at the soiled walls, at all the wretchedness which gave the place the look of some low brothel displayed in all its bareness at that drowsy hour of the afternoon when the girls are sleeping. When he arrived at the second landing, he had to step over a big turtle-shell cat curled up asleep on the top stair. With its eyes half-closed, this cat watched all alone over the house, always in a state of somnolency from the cool and stuffy odors left behind there every night by the women. In the passage on the right, the door of the dressing-room was, as La Bordette had said, only pushed to. Nana was waiting there. That little slut of a Mathilde kept her dressing-room in a slovenly state. There were cracked pots scattered all about a dirty wash-hand basin, and a chair stained with rouge as though someone had been bleeding on the rush seat. The paper which covered the walls and the ceiling was splashed all over with soapy water. There was such a stench there, such a smell of lavender turned musty, that Nana opened the window. 
She stood there for a minute, breathing the fresh air, and leaning out to catch a glimpse of Madame Bron, whom she heard vigorously sweeping the green flagstones on the shady side of the narrow courtyard. A canary in a cage hung up against a shutter was uttering some piercing roulades. One could not hear the sounds of the vehicles on the boulevard or in the neighboring streets. All was as peaceful as in the country, though the sun but seldom penetrated there. On raising her eyes, Nana saw the little buildings and the shining glass roofs of the Galerie of the Passage. Then farther off, in front of her, the high houses of the Rue Vivienne, the backs of which were so devoid of life that they seemed empty. Terraces rose one above another. On a roof, a photographer had perched an enormous cage of blue glass. It looked very gay. Nana was becoming absorbed in contemplating the scene when she thought she heard a knock at the door. She turned round and called out, Come in! End of chapter 9, part 1